hello what is up and welcome back to girl you haven't heard a true crime and black history podcast where we discuss things from a decolonial critical perspective and above all else without all of the unnecessary copaganda now welcome to the wrap-up i suppose of season one of girl you haven't heard uh where for the next three weeks the episodes will be solely focused on the winnipeg police service and some of the really horrendous things that they do, the things that they get away with, and the things that they have done to cover up for other officers in the past. Now, the Winnipeg Police Service recently declared a state of emergency because they are supposedly understaffed, despite having over $300 million at their disposal to work with to hire staff. And I just really wanted to take the time to focus on why they should not be receiving any more money. In fact, why they should be defunded why they should be abolished by just analyzing some of the cases in the past, breaking apart their actions and just making it very clear that the police do not help, they do not serve, all they do is cause harm. Now we'll be analyzing specific cases. We will also be taking a peek into the creation of the IIU and how that whole thing operates and really just getting into it. If you're new here, my name is Jada, and I'm an abolitionist organizer who strongly believes in the defunding and the abolition of all police services uh, across the world, but specifically Winnipeg Police Services, that is my hometown, and I firsthand have seen the horrendous things that they have done to people. This week we are going to be discussing the Crystal Tamman case, and we will also be discussing the inquiry that followed after the horrendous handling of her case. So we're going to start off, like always, with a little bit of background information about who Crystal was, her life, and just some of her interests. So Crystal Ann Tamman Svensson was born on August 22nd, 1964 in Kamloops, British Columbia. And at only two years old, her family picked up and relocated to Winnipeg, Manitoba, where she would remain for the rest of her life. Now, while in high school in Winnipeg, she met Robert and they quickly fell head over heels in love for one another. And not too long after this, the pair actually got married and welcomed to the world daughters Tara and Kristen and son Jordan. After her kids were born, the majority of her time was spent with them and aside from her marriage to Robert, her children remained her first priority. Her family's happiness was of the utmost importance to her, and she took great pride in her family and their well-being. In the early 90s, Crystal took a break from being a full-time mom and spouse to go to Red River College to begin a career in dental assistance. After she completed her coursework and graduated, she worked for a few different offices until she found a permanent location on Henderson Highway, which she enjoyed. Now, Crystal was also a creative and had many passions, interests, and hobbies, which included, but were not limited to, candle making, crocheting, and knitting, as well as jewelry design. She was described as a very lovable, a very giving, and a very generous person, and she was the type who would want to see the good in everyone and make the best out of every situation. And she had such a warm smile, so it wasn't hard for those around her to give into that same positive energy. Crystal and her family lived in East St. Paul, which is a municipality that sits just a few minutes away from Winnipeg city limits. And Crystal was known for her bright yellow 
14-year-old Chevy Sprint convertible, which was really good on gas, but extremely small compared to the trucks and SUVs that most others were driving, um, as most others were driving who lived in East St. Paul and would often make the trek from East St. Paul to Winnipeg on a regular basis. So Crystal would often reassure her parents about her small car, saying that no one would ever hit her because of how bright her car was. The paint stuck out from over a mile away. And like this car was neon yellow, like bright, bright, bright yellow. So I guess that was really reassuring to Crystal. So now we're just going to fast forward a bit to the end of February 2005, when Crystal and Robert were planning to take a spring trip to Mexico it was their first ever vacation after 22 years of marriage, so they were both really excited. They were really looking forward to it. Something would happen that would cause their plans to be quickly halted. So information about what Derek did leading up to the crash actually came up in the inquiry, which we will discuss a little bit later, but I just think it makes contextually more sense to discuss what he did here rather than later, but I just want to note that he and none of the other participants in what went on were forthcoming about this information and they kind of covered it up until the inquiry when there was a little bit more public pressure to tell the truth. Eric Harvey Zenk was a constable with the Winnipeg Police Service who joined the force in 2000 and on the night of February 24th, 2005, Derek was working in Winnipeg's North End after he got off his shift that night, he and about 25 other officers were drinking at Browningen's Lounge as police were given a deal on chicken wings there, and they also got pints of beer for only $2.75. Waitress who worked that night initially lied to investigators about what and how much the officers consumed that night as she had been instructed by her boss to play dumb as he was good friends with several of the officers who were there. So she later recanted the lie that she didn't know what the officers consumed and she told them that Derek ordered and drank between 8 and 9 pints between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Officers this night were also given free shots of hard liquor, free pitchers of beer as well. So it's unclear not only how much Derek drank, but also his fellow colleagues. Now, the waitress remembers that all of the officers were pretty rowdy when leaving, but they had to leave because the bar was closing. So after leaving Brownigan's, the officers who were already intoxicated drove intoxicated to continue the party at an East St. Paul home of Sergeant Sean Black. While at Sean's house, he himself, Sean, says that he was too busy fixing a popcorn machine to notice who was drinking what but he did know that the guests finished a 26 ounce bottle of rye and part a bottle of Bailey's. So between the beer, the hard liquor that they were drinking at the bar, went back to someone's house and continued to drink more hard liquor. So they, all of them must've been pretty intoxicated at this point because they had been drinking from 11 p.m. onwards. So to me, it's kind of honestly a miracle that more accidents did not happen that night based on the all night drinking and partying that was going on between these 25 officers. Now, Sean alleges that out of all of the officers, only one was visibly drunk and it wasn't Derek. So there was no issue with letting Derek drive home. Derek was one of the last officers to leave the house party at around 6.30 a.m. and made his way back into the city where he lived. So on February 25th, 2005, at around 8 a.m., 
40-year-old petite crystal, who's only 5'1", she hugged and kissed her children goodbye, as she always did before driving into work in her little yellow car. So while stopped at a red light on Highway 59, a large blue Dodge Dakota truck weighing about two tons, and I had to Google this because I was like, I don't know how heavy a ton is, but two tons would be just under about 4,500 pounds. So this truck was driven by 31-year-old Derek Harvey Zenk, who rear-ended Crystal at high speed. So he was going approximately 80 kilometers an hour or 50 miles an hour, and he killed her directly upon impact or shortly thereafter. He was in this absolutely massive truck and she was in quite a small car, so her car was literally destroyed by Derek and with her small frame, her chance of survival was extremely low, especially because Derek had made no attempt to stop or slow down prior to coming into contact with her. So her car quite literally folded from 3 meters in length to 2 because of how strong the impact was. So the first person to rush out of their car to try and help Crystal was a man named Dale Casper and he was determined to help out in any way that he had could as he had seen the whole accident. He had seen them being stopped at the light, he saw this huge blue truck coming and he thought to himself there is absolutely no way that this truck is going to be able to slow down in time. So he saw all of this coming. So he hopped out of his car, tried to help her, he went to check for a pulse and unfortunately there was not one. The crash had also injured another woman, but luckily she was able to survive. Now, this, this situation in totality is terrible, and it's also kind of puzzling and confusing because it was 7 in the morning. Because it was quite early in the morning, and crashes like this usually do not happen at a time like this, but this situation was especially more heinous because at the time, Derek Harvey Zenk was a constable with the Winnipeg Police Service, and he had actually joined the Winnipeg Police Service in 2000. So this crash occurred in 2005. He had only been with them for about five years. Now, as Derek got out of his car, he was very disoriented, according to multiple witnesses. They also say that he was absolutely reeking of alcohol. It was very strong coming off of him, and he seemed to be completely unaware of what he had just done. Now this situation gets even more unfortunate as her daughters Tara and Kristen were not too far behind the whole accident. Now as they were first trying to pass and get into the city of Winnipeg from their home in East St. Paul, they were rerouted around the accident. But Tara immediately grew concerned and tried calling her mom as she knew that she was driving not too far ahead of them. And after getting no answer from her mom's phone, they decided to circle back around the scene of the crash and recognize what remained of their mother's car. Remember I mentioned it was very bright, it was yellow, and it was little. So it was very clear to them that it was her involved in the accident. Tara said that when the girls pulled up to the scene, they were actually putting a tarp over the car while Crystal was still in it. So Tara says that all she can think of is the pair pulling up, seeing her car, which was easily recognizable, and they were not able to get to her. At this time, East St. Paul had their own police service that operated independently of the RCMP and the Winnipeg Police Service, and they, along with ambulances and paramedics, were the first on the scene. As soon as Kristen and Tara pulled up to the scene, 
they were taken by East St. Paul officers and held in the back of a police car until their father arrived, even though they asked to be let out multiple times. No one had interviewed them, no one had asked what they had seen in the back of that car, and no one was telling them what was going on. They were given no information, they were just being detained. As the incident had occurred in East St. Paul jurisdiction, the case was initially investigated by East St. Paul Police, which was led at the time by Police Chief Harry Backma. This was also hugely problematic as Derek and Backema had previously worked together at the Winnipeg Police Service, and so there was some level of loyalty despite Zenk murdering a woman, injuring another, and being drunk on top of all of that. After arriving on scene, Bakuma and Zenk spoke for several minutes while Bakuma alleges that it was only a few seconds. He even put his arm around Derek and helped him over to a police car. And as Bakuma was helping him over, Derek mumbled out, I'm a cop. There were multiple witnesses who heard this exchange go down. So like I mentioned before, Bakuma and Derek had worked together for a little over two years before Bakuma became the chief of the East St. Paul Police Service. Bakuma said that he could not smell any alcohol on Derek's breath, but he also had made no attempt to carry out field sobriety tests, such as watching him walk in a straight line, checking his eyes, or monitoring his speech for signs of impairment. Bakuma actually took Derek directly to the car of inexperienced constable Jason Wojcik. And Jason said that he was told by his superior that he was possibly dealing with a drunk cop and that he was not to do anything about it. Bakuma says that he told Jason that the suspect was a cop, but does not admit to saying that he was impaired or possibly drunk in any way. But multiple witnesses could smell the alcohol on him. So this was not news. It was not a surprise that he was under the influence. It was not a shock. After being brought over to Jason's car, Derek was examined by a paramedic who told Jason that he could smell the booze on his breath, but Jason did not mention this in any notes or reports because Bakuma ordered him to remove any references of alcohol. Derek was then locked in the back of Jason's police car for about 40 minutes without being formally arrested or being read his rights. This was clearly done in an attempt to allow him to sober up a bit before taking him to the station. So after that time had passed, Derek was taken to the East St. Paul Police Station where another sergeant, Norm Carter, watched him walk unsteadily, arrested him, and asked him for a breath sample, which Derek, of course, refused. Now, while Derek was sitting in the car, Bakuma had actually removed Derek's police uniform from his truck and made a point not to log it into evidence, but he made sure to log minuscule things such as pens and golf balls. He also made a bunch of calls to senior officers at the Winnipeg Police Service, and while Bakuma claims that he did this to inform the force that one of their officers had been in an accident, it's more than likely that this call served as a heads up and to ask how they wanted the situation to be handled and collaborating on how they could both work to cover up things on both ends and to smooth things over. Bakuma remained at the crash site hours after it happened, and he even spoke to Winnipeg Police Service Officer Cecil Sveinson, who was a cousin of Crystal's who had gone to the site that same night to pray for her. And... 
when he got there, he was speaking to Bakuma and he asked, was he? And before the question could even get out, Bakuma said, pissed? Oh yeah, we had to get him out of here right away. Now this was a comment that Bakuma would of course later deny, but why would Cecil lie about something like this? There's absolutely no reason to. And it was clear that Derek had been drinking. Why else would this accident have been caused? And why would it happen so early in the morning? Crystal's husband, Robert, actually found out from found out from a relative rather than officers or officials themselves that it was an off-duty drunk officer whose pickup hit and killed his wife. So as soon as Robert heard that an officer was responsible, he was immediately worried and scared about police looking to protect their own, as everyone knows that this is what they do, especially in Winnipeg. So Derek was charged with a bunch of things tied to Crystal's death, which included impaired driving causing death, refusing a breathalyzer test, dangerous operation of a motor vehicle causing death, and criminal negligence causing death. At some point, the Winnipeg Police Professional Standards Unit interviewed everyone who was at the party leading up to the crash, and apparently all of these trained professionals could not remember how much Derek drank or whether he was impaired at all. They alleged that the height of the tables at Brannigan's made it extremely difficult to see how much he was drinking, but they were able to remember and see that Derek ate just under 50 wings. It is a red flag that the Winnipeg police were responsible for any sort of investigation when this case involved one of their officers and the case was technically under East St. Paul jurisdiction. But of course, Bakuma was the one who requested help from the WPS despite the clear and bold conflict of interest that it would present. And he did not request assistance at all from the much larger RCMP, which would have technically been the red call in this situation. All of the messed up things that Bakuma did actually led him to facing a charge of obstructing justice, but he was acquitted of this charge despite clearly obstructing justice throughout this entire process. So the province of Manitoba which hires all formal prosecutions, were actually hired private lawyer Marty Minnick as a special prosecutor in this case as they wanted to avoid appearances of conflicts of interest. He was hired because the police officer and officers who would have been involved in this investigation or would have been involved in the cover-up in some way usually worked with crown prosecutors so it would have been a clear conflict it would have been quite difficult to expect them to do their job properly considering the close relationship that they had with these officers so minnick was a defense lawyer who graduated with a law degree from the university of manitoba in 1978 and he currently runs his practice out of the mlt akins Martin claims that he was unable to make the most serious of the alcohol-related charges stick, and so he decided to just go for a plea bargain instead of even attempting to take the case to trial, which is a red flag, obviously, for many reasons, but he says that a plea bargain was the only way that Derek would be convicted due to the evidence, or lack thereof. But when you look at it, there was more than enough evidence to prosecute. They just didn't want to do the investigation properly because then it would have led to the persecution and jail time of their own. And they were not trying to do that. They wanted to protect Derek at all costs. 
So Minnick actually reached a plea bargain that saw Derek only convicted of dangerous driving causing death. The judge who presided over the case did not want to accept this deal, and he publicly said that he didn't want to sign off on it, but he ultimately felt that there was no choice. In 2007, Derek was sentenced to two years of house arrest. Yes, house arrest. This man didn't even get jail time. It was just straight house arrest. So the deal was heavily criticized in and out of the media. People were also extremely critical of this because the Crown and defense lawyer, including Marty, had collaborated as a defense team in another high-profile case that was settled around the same time. So even though they hired him to give the appearance of conflict of interest, hiring him was still a direct conflict because he was working with the Crown lawyers who worked closely with the police. Just conflict upon conflict upon conflict. The day after the plea went through, Manitoba Premier at the time at the time, he said that the sentence left too many questions unanswered, and so, in part, due to immense public pressure, a public inquiry was called. The inquiry would be led by Roger Salhani, a retired judge of the Ontario Superior Court, and there were also extensive reviews done of the East St. Paul Police Service and the provincial policy regarding the appointment of special prosecutors. The inquiry would begin in June of 2008. So Roger Salhani had the responsibility of looking into the conduct of the investigation and just everything that had to do with the police and the death of Crystal on February 25th, 2005. His set of responsibilities were outlined in a document that you can find online, but I will just briefly summarize here. He was to make sure that things were done correctly and properly and that all of their practices were followed and that they were followed to their professional set of standards. He was to look into the prosecution of Derek and see if the conduct of the lawyers was also up to code. And he was to see if further investigation was needed on any topic and he could assign essentially whoever he wanted to do it. Roger had to report any of his findings about any of the things that may have contributed to the results of his investigation. I'm assuming they meant when he found the clear misconduct. The wording in the document is a little bit convoluted. It's a little bit confusing, but they do make a point of saying that he must make recommendations he feels are appropriate that help restore confidence in the Manitoban justice system. So it was clear that they knew that they had messed up severely and they were kind of just doing this to get back in good public faith, not because they actually wanted to care about what happened to Crystal, not because they wanted to further prosecute anyone or hold anyone accountable. They just wanted to give the appearance of such. He was given a deadline of September 30th, 2008, and he could give them updates that he deemed urgent, but he wasn't required to. And he wasn't limited to the duties that were outlined in the document. He had full range to look into kind of anything he wanted if it was tied to Crystal's death somehow. The inquiry ordered that all of the police services involved in the investigation were legally obligated to participate in all aspects regardless of who it was. And I thought this was a funny thing to add because aren't they legally ob obligated to kind of tell the truth in the first place in the first investigation? before Derek was prosecuted. Now, before public hearings of in the inquiry went on, he was actually able to interview anyone he wanted or the interviews could be done by someone he hired and it could be just that person he hired, just himself or the both of them. Um, but if they were done alone, the council had to give Robert a transcript or final report of each interview. 
this to me seemed like a large loophole uh, because it seemed like an easy way to cover up anything else they wanted to cover up since these were not documents that were going to be part of the public investigation and if he wasn't present in the room or if it was just him in the room he could just lie about what went on so even though they ordered this public inquiry they still didn't do it to the fullest extent because they didn't really care about holding anyone accountable so the inquiry itself into crystal's death lasted about 30 days it began in june of 2008 and ended on august 14th of that same year over 50 witnesses testified there were over 252 exhibits filed and there are over 7,000 pages of transcripts in this inquiry. So sometime between when Derek was given house arrest and between the inquiry, he was able to resign from the force instead of being fired and he changed his name to Harvey Mordenzank, one word. Why this was done, I'm sure it wasn't an, an attempt to maintain some sort of privacy and because he didn't want to keep that name associated, that, that was literally plastered everywhere at the time. So Marty Minnick actually made a comment that the only two people who actually knew what had happened was Tara and Kristen. And he said that they would be the ace up their sleeve later down the road. What exactly this meant, I'm unsure, but I'm assuming it meant that they would kind of unravel the case, they would unravel the story, they would be the reason that the truth would come out. And that's probably part of the reason that Marty did not push for a trial, because he knew that if a trial happened, the severity would really come out, and then he would not be well-liked or respected by his crown peers, who he often enjoyed working with because it made him more money and he wouldn't be respected by officers so that would just make his life more difficult in totality. So Minnick had actually, it came out in the inquiry that Minnick had actually told Crystal's son Jordan that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that alcohol was a factor in the crash which made Jordan very angry and he was 23 years old at the time so he was really upset but it broke his father you know what i mean his dad broke down in tears and he was just absolutely crushed at this news because everyone knew that alcohol was a factor there's no way that alcohol could not have been a factor in this crash happening at the place and time that it did he had also been out drinking all night and they knew that for without a doubt do you know what i mean so to say that they couldn't prove that alcohol was a factor is total bs but Zank's lawyer, his lawyer said that he was not intoxicated, but however, fell asleep at the wheel after staying up all night. But what was he staying up all night doing? He was staying up all night drinking, right? So why else would he fall asleep at the wheel if that is what happened? Because he was drunk. So it was in the inquiry that it was revealed that Marty, right? the prosecuting attorney in the case told the man who rushed out of his car to try and help crystal at the site and other witnesses that their testimony wouldn't be needed in court when this information came out it was clear that marty was already planning on negotiating a bargain and he never wanted to take the case to trial minnick would actually say 
to multiple people that it was likely that Derek would receive house arrest instead of a trial and he blamed that on a poor investigation and claimed that house arrest was the best outcome that could be expected at this time. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience, it's not very common for people who kill others to receive house arrest and receive only two years house arrest at that. This seems to be something that is exclusive to police officers. And if there was such a poor investigation done, as a prosecuting attorney, it is your responsibility to go back over all of that evidence and to figure those things out. But ultimately, everyone was afraid of the Winnipeg police, their overarching power, and no one really wanted to go against Zink in such a way. Because by going against Zink, it means that they were also going against the police. A final inquiry report was released in October of 2008 and it contained 14 recommendations. So a lot of the recommendations that were included were put there to try and reform the manner in which police are investigated. It was tried to resolve potential conflicts of interest, to recommend increased training regarding victim impact statements and testimony, and as well as increased training of the East St. Paul police. But get this, instead of choosing to up the training or redo the training, the severity of this case was so so horrendous that they chose to disband and abolish the East St. Paul Police Service indefinitely. And they were replaced with RCMP officers. The fact that this case alone was enough for them to be like, yeah, we're not doing this again. Sorry, East St. Paul Police, you gotta go. And just get rid of them. It shows that abolition is possible. And Winnipeg's already kind of done it. Like, y'all did it. So what would be the big deal in just doing it again for the Winnipeg Police Service too? So Crystal's death and the inquiry was thought to be a major driving force behind the creation of the Independent Investigation Unit or the IIU in 2015. Now there will also be an episode released this month where we further analyze the IIU, their failures, their shortcomings, and what has to be done with said unit, but we'll get to that when that episode comes around. So Robert, who actually served on the Manitoba Police Commission himself, which was created in part to implement the Police Services Act, which passed in response to the death of his wife. And he actually quit the commission because he had serious concerns about the IIU as it was just retired police officers investigating current police officers. So Robert actually said in a CBC interview done in 2017, that most times everybody is just too close they're like a family and it's pretty hard for them to be objective and to do their job properly knowing that it's their own they're investigating i still feel that way and i'm always going to feel that way so crystal's husband and her children would actually go on to sue east st paul and its former police chief harry Bakama. They would sue the Winnipeg Police Service, including the five officers who investigated the provincial government, and they would also sue Marty Minnick. They were seeking unspecified general and aggravated damages for emotional and mental distress, including depression and anxiety, following the death of their mother and following the death of Robert's wife. Now, Derek was not included in this lawsuit because under MPI, or Manitoba's Public Insurance, 
uh, crash victims can't sue the drivers for damages of any kind, so they had to kind of go around him. The family was represented in this lawsuit by Jean Zalzalinchuk, and Zalzalinchuk was actually able to get the family a $300,000 settlement, and this settlement would be paid for by the province of Manitoba and the city of Winnipeg. It was split right down the middle, so it was $150,000 apiece. And the family was quite happy with this settlement as it meant some sort of accountability for them. And the government wanted to settle this lawsuit as quickly as possible. They did not like the fact that it was out there. They did not like that it was making them look bad as they were clearly at fault for all of this. Like it was one of those cases where everything was done so terribly, so publicly, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't hide it. And so they just had to settle. They had no choice. They had no grounds to dismiss any sort of lawsuit. Now, I mentioned before briefly that Harry Bakama, the East St. Paul police chief at the time, was charged. And he had actually been charged with perjury, criminal breach of trust, and obstruction of justice by the RCMP. The family's inquiry is actually what led to the prosecution, or to, I shouldn't say the prosecution, to the charges being filed against Bakuma, and Bakuma backed up everything that he did. He said that he did the best that he could with what he had there at the time and with his abilities. He said that he didn't think that Derek was drinking at the crash, uh, he couldn't smell a scent on him, even though everyone else clearly could, uh, and his lawyer claims that he wasn't doing anything to deliberately assist Derek in any way, but everything that he did, everything that he did was done to assist Derek and make sure that he was not prosecuted to the full ex fullest extent. But it was clear that the lack of investigation that was done on Bakuma's end is what led Minnick to be able to continue that cover up by saying that the evidence wasn't there. Um, Bakuma messed up that whole investigation by making sure that none of the reports included alcohol when there was clearly alcohol involved. Like he had been out drinking. This was known. He was seen. So them trying to lie about it and trying to hide it just didn't work. Crystal's husband, Robert, says that the only thing that he and his family want in the past, the only thing that they're hoping for is accountability. And so to see that happen in terms of their payout and in terms of the investigation into Bakuma. And even though the charges were later dropped, they were still filed, he was still investigated, and the East St. Paul Police District was disbanded. It, it was a win because that was accountability, and that's all that they wanted. They didn't want people to be able to get away with this because the police were doing everything that they could to make sure that they got away with it. And we have now come to the part of the podcast where we discuss my thoughts. This case was wild to learn about, to say the least. I remember being in middle school and at the time one of my friend's moms had told me about it and I was like, there's no way, there's no way. And then I went and I looked it up and I was like, oh my God, like this really happened. And it's crazy that people don't really talk about it because this is a huge thing, right? For a police service 
just outside of Winnipeg to have been involved in such a large cover-up. It shows that the police work together. Like, they're this huge gang that will always work together to protect their own, even when they're so clearly caught doing something wrong. Like, it was known that Derek was out drinking all night, that he was out partying all night, and then still decided to drive home. And early in the morning, and everyone knows that the, that Lajmonier that connects uh, East St. Paul to Winnipeg, it's always busy every morning because so many people who live in East St. Paul make that daily trek into Winnipeg for work, for school, to run errands, all those kinds of things. So it was extremely dangerous for him to be driving home at this time. But it's not just the fact that he was driving home, it's the fact that he and all of his other officer friends who he had been out partying with all night also drove home. It is a real miracle that more people were not injured. It is a real miracle that more people did not die when you have so many people driving home drunk and driving on highways drunk at high speeds. That Crystal's husband, Robert, stepped away from his position because he didn't believe that police could effectively investigate other police is very telling. The fact that people don't listen and haven't heeded to that warning and it that has still prevailed. Like when we get into the case of the IIU, we'll see that all they do is protect police and that's all that they've done since conception. It's really not possible for police to be held accountable when they're given such overarching power and it's not possible when you're expecting other police officers to also hold them accountable. All they're going to do is protect their own. I think that this case was really prominent and it really hit home because it was a suburban mom who was just driving to work and that tugged on a lot of people's heartstrings as it should this is a horrendous situation and crystal should still be here with her family and with her children i think this is one of those cases where it truly shows the depths of the police power in winnipeg and it shows the lengths that people will go to uh, in order to protect them but they're only doing so quite i'm not gonna say only but i feel like a larger part of this is people doing so in order to protect themselves like if that waitress had been honest from the start and had told like yeah this is what i saw who knows what could have happened to her or what could have happened to that man her boss and his business like yes it is very wrong to protect the police but you also have to think about the position that these people are put in based on the power that the police have specifically in Winnipeg because it is such a cop-driven culture. Like from the time you're in elementary school, you are told you have a problem, you know what I mean? You see something, you don't try and step in and intervene and handle it yourself, you just call the police. See some homeless people, you just call the police. You see someone who's publicly intoxicated, just call the police. See someone fighting, just call the police. Every problem is met with the solution of just call the police because you can trust them and it's clear that we cannot trust them. This case was also very interesting to me because instead of working to reform the East St. Paul Police Service, they just got rid of it. They just got rid of it. So it shows that people understand the concept of abolition, it shows that it's not too far out of reach, and it shows that people know how to practically get it done and get it done quickly when there's public pressure. With all being said, our feet have to stay on the necks of politicians, policymakers, and just the general public as well when it comes to abolition. There's no other way out. There was no other way to fix this situation than to just get rid of the police service that had been at the forefront for all of the wrongdoing. Now I understand that 
the Winnipeg Police Service were also involved in the cover-up, but this cover-up was really led by Harry Bakuma and his officers. So they just got rid of it. And I think that's just what we should do with the Winnipeg Police as well. Just get rid of them. Don't bring in the RCMP to replace them, though. Just permanently get rid of them and replace with alternatives that are much better for community. So at the end of the day, the RCMP are cops. Cops are still cops. To me, it would have been ideal if the area just didn't have police rather than allowing the RCMP to come over and take the jurisdiction that used to belong to the East St. Paul Police. In my opinion, if this situation was enough for the province to agree that disbanding that police service was necessary and charge their reigning police chief, would it not have been logical to also reassess and reevaluate how effective the police truly were in comparison to how harmful they clearly were in practice? I was only about six years old at the time that this case happened, so I'm unsure of what the social climate was of Winnipeg in terms of police or policing, but it seems like by choosing to just get rid completely of East St. Paul altogether was this choice that everyone supported. So to me, it's just kind of like, well, if this is a choice that they could have supported back in 2005, it's not too far of a leap to think about abolition. So when that wave in 2020 happened, all the people acting as if this was so far-fetched, it's really not. And like Winnipeg, the province has done it already. So I am curious, though, of how many of the East St. Paul police officers actually just went and got hired by the Winnipeg police or the RCMP or just quit the job altogether. Information on the, those things wasn't really accessible, but to me, all scenarios would be kind of likely after this incident happened. The cover-up came from the top down, so it was easy to say I was just following orders, and the fact that everyone had told the truth after a charge had already been laid and a plea had been signed off on, to me, still shows the sense of loyalty and or fear that it would bring to speak on things when the people directly involved and directly a part of the act of cover-up were not being totally forthcoming and honest. It was clear that they wanted to protect not only Zinc, but their image as well. Like, how would it look if one of them was clearly drunk and they all knew and investigated to bring forth the, those results instead of protecting him? And this was especially highlighted because Bakuma and Zinc worked together, they were friends, there was some level of camaraderie that was stronger than just being a fellow police officer. So I'm just curious as to what point I was just following orders is no longer a viable excuse, like why the charges only stopped with Bakuma, why they weren't everyone involved. That was kind of a question to me. Um, but essentially they were all able to just pass the buck off to Bakuma or to someone else and just absolve themselves of responsibility, which to me is still wrong. Also, if Robert Crystal's husband was able to identify that cops investigating cops won't work, and this is especially as someone who stepped away from his position at the Manitoba Police Commission, a position he was given to oversee the creation of the IIU, which wasn't all that independent due to the strength and depth of their loyalty, it's not super far-fetched to suggest that 17 years after Crystal's death that this sense of loyalty and camaraderie has not changed, that it has only gotten stronger and much worse and as a result police are no longer even attempting to hide that they are not willing to prosecute other police or to be held accountable in any sort of sense. I also don't fully understand why Tara and Kristen were kept in the back of the police car until their father arrived. I haven't heard of this happening in other cases. If it has then I just didn't see them when I was looking but it seems kind of odd 
And to me, it seems that it was clearly done to prevent them from seeing or interacting with the cover-up that started, in my opinion, from the time they all left Brannigan's after a night of drinking and after a night of disproportionately harassing and assaulting Black and Indigenous folks living in Winnipeg's North End. And the cover-up ended with the silence being kept by all of the witnesses until after the plea had been accepted. And it even continued on into the inquiry where the police officers were not able to identify how many drinks that had been had by Zink, but they were able to identify how many chicken wings he ate. Winnipeg police also have a history of drunk driving and causing death or drunk driving and causing injury to themselves or to others, and we will be analyzing some of those other cases. But it's important to note that this is a institutional problem, right? The only reason that the police feel that they can do this and drive drunk and drive intoxicated and kind of just do whatever they want is because there's this culture of immunity and a culture of impunity where they know that they will not be held responsible for any wrongdoing because they are police. And that has to change. Now, we know that the police and the system, they're not going to hold each other accountable. But as citizens and as civilians and as people, what we can do is out the wrongdoings that they've done and publicly name and shame them. Like, Derek's name deserves to be out there. He doesn't deserve to just hide and act like he didn't do this and like he's not responsible for the death of this woman and like he didn't try and tell them that like hey I'm a police officer to try and get them to cover it up because all of that happened you don't just get to act like you didn't you don't just get to change your name to Harvey Morden Zenk and just act like you get a fresh start because you don't so I just want to thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we discuss the Crystal Tamman case and her death, the inquiry into her death, and the culture of impunity that surrounds Winnipeg police officers. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving the podcast a rating and also share it with someone who you think needs to know about how the East St. Paul Police Service was abolished and what happened leading up to that, as well as just needs to know about this case and the horrendous things that the police are able to get away with and have been getting away with for decades now. So thank you so much again for joining, and I will see you next week where we will discuss the IIU.